The CBF podcast is presented to you by Fuller Seminary. Fuller Seminary's MA in Theology and Ministry offers a practice-focused theological education. Study online or on campus and learn from Fuller's seasoned scholar practitioners and apply what you're learning to your own context. Whatever your ministry goals, Fuller Seminary's MA in Theology and Ministry will help you take the next step in your vocation. For more information, visit fuller.edu backslash M-A-T-M degree. That's fuller.edu backslash M-A-T-M degree. Since 2016, CBF has brought you over 100 episodes of interviews with authors and practitioners for conversations that matter. These stories of creativity and innovation have garnered weekly support from around the United States and the world. We are inviting you, the listeners, to join us in connecting with the podcast. Become a monthly listener supporter and receive some perks, including name recognition on the podcast, questions for upcoming guests, free books from the podcast, joining the podcast for an interview, and a VIP experience with the General Assembly podcast guest. There are five levels of listener support starting at $5 per month. For less than the cost of a pumpkin spice latte, you will be featured by name on the weekly podcast episode. For more information and to join the community of listener supporters, visit cbf.net slash podcast support. This is the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship's Conversations. We are bringing you stories from across the fellowship through interviews with people doing groundbreaking work and renewing God's world. Ideas, stories, and innovation from ministers, authors, and practitioners from across the fellowship and beyond. This is Andy Hale. 2020 is off to a great start for the CBF podcast with guests like Father Thomas Reese, Soon Cheng Ra, and Casey Van Norman. We also have a lot of exciting episodes ahead, including interviews with Eugene Cho, Sarah Bessie, and our week in D.C. at Advocacy in Action. Don't forget that you can be a part of supporting the podcast while receiving some great benefits, such as joining an interview with an upcoming guest, books from authors interviewed, and a VIP experience at this summer's General Assembly. We want to thank William Johnson and Cindy Folendor for their monthly support of the podcast. Check out how you can support at cbf.net backslash podcast support. And now, on to our conversation. Our guest for this week's CBF podcast conversation is Elizabeth Braw. She is the author of God's Spies. She has also contributed to Newsweek, the Wall Street Journal, and the London Times. Elizabeth, thank you for joining the conversation. Thank you for having me. Well, before we get to your current work in the book, of course, tell us a little bit more about you. Well, so as you said, my name is Elizabeth Braw, and despite uh, it sounding like a, a an Anglo-Saxon name. I'm actually uh, Swedish. This is the name I was born with. My family is the only family anywhere in the world that has a surname. So <laughs> it makes me feel rather special. And it's also easy if I want to Google myself. Um, so uh, I'm, I'm Swedish by nationality. Uh, the pastor's daughter grew up as the oldest of seven children. And uh, I've lo- lived abroad since uh, going to university, which I did in, in uh, Germany and the former East in the early to mid 90s. And uh, um, after that, I first I lived in Washington. I lived in San Francisco. Well, those cities combined for 12 years. Um, I lived in Rome. And for the past 10 years, I've lived in London, uh, first as a journalist and now as a uh, think tank uh, and uh, uh, special and um, uh, as you can tell from uh, the title of my book uh, I've maintained my strong interest in Germany and especially in, in the former East Germany and uh, it, from my perspective and I, I think all so objectively speaking, there is so much we can still learn from, from the old East Germany and from the way the country operated and from the way people lived within that country because it says something about human nature. Um, in terms of uh, more about myself, just to wrap it up, um, I'm happily married to a Midwesterner from Grand, Rap- Grand Rapids, Michigan, and uh, my two children were also born in the U.S. and are U.S. citizens. One was born on the East Coast and one on the West Coast. 
Well, I hear you actually speak German, Swedish, and English, and get by on Italian. Can you uh, can you show off your skills a little bit? Not that I would be able to translate what you're saying. Ja, ich kann jetzt ein bisschen in mein Buch erzählen. Also es geht ja jetzt um um das Ministerium für Staatssicherheit, das normalerweise also von von eigentlich von jedem Straße genannt wurde und um dieses Ministerium geht es in meinem Buch und zwar geht es um Abteilung 20, ähm, ja, dass ich mit Köchen beschäftigte. Uh, I hope that's. <laughs> yeah, well, I'll, let me. Uh, for... Maybe we could do the whole interview in German. <laughs> <laughs> we could test your listeners. Well, yeah, I'll, I'll go ahead and translate for our listeners. Uh, you know, you're so happy to be on uh, the most brilliant podcast available in iTunes right now. It's uh, such a huge honor, and you cannot think of another way to spend your free time on an evening uh, in, in London. Something along those you lines, the, right? You are the most proficient, proficient German translator anyone could. Fantastic job. <laughs> All right. Now, before we get to your existing post, uh, you um, were you are a career uh, journalist. Um, you wrote on uh, a lot on, on on political matters. So, um, what was your favorite story to cover uh, when you were a, a bit more active in in your journalism? I think my most story ever, not because it was acting, but because it was just such a powerful. Uh, uh, doing it, and it was in fact it was a privilege to be able to do it. Was a story about acid attack victims in Pakistan, uh, women whose um, whose uh, husbands and and uh, in laws had um, thrown acid at them for one reason or another. Um, I went there to do this story and, and spent time with victims in Lahore, which is a, a, a large city in Pakistan, and. I'll tell you, I've never met such brave people before or after. So the reason that um, their families throw acid at women is because they want to divorce them. Um, and so they uh, essentially want them to, uh, well, want them to hide in a corner for the rest of their lives. And, and so if... <laughs> If somebody throws acid in your, your face, melt away, essentially. And so you look hideous. You look like a monster. It's like uh, having been giving a, a, given a death sentence, but continuing to live. Um, uh, but these women are incredibly brutal. You imagine um, mostly young women without any any particular education or professional skills or vocational skills, all of a sudden they're cast out by their husbands and their in-laws and they have to fend for themselves uh, looking hideous. But these people I went, these women I went to interview, despite that, and with the help of a a kind um, uh, beauty salon uh, uh, entrepreneur, very uh, an amazing woman uh, they have managed to rebuild their lives and, and uh, the women i went to visit this is incredibly impressive uh, they have retrained with the help of this woman they've retrained as beauticians professionally as beauticians making other women beautiful even though obviously there is no hope for them and they earn money and they have pride and overcome the most incredible obstacles so um i hope um that uh, well i i hope people learn from them take inspiration from them and obviously i hope that uh, the pakistani government bans sale uh, of acid because it's it's a cruel weapon the cruelest weapon you could imagine as you as you think back on all the stories you've written on, certainly that is one that I can imagine changes your perspective. But um, what piece did you work on that that most changed you as as an individual? It might have been it might have been uh, the interview I did uh, many years ago before he died. Uh, East Germans, East Germany's former intelligence chief. Now, East Germany was a small country, was not a particularly wealthy country, but um, it was phenomenally successful in espionage. And it was successful thanks to this one man, Marcus Wolf, his name, and he's rumored to be the 
uh, the person on whom uh, Carla is modeled in John Le Carré's novels. So if anybody has read Le Carré, uh, they know Carla. Well, that apparently is, um, that character is inspired by Marcus Wolf. And he, he was so incredibly successful because he didn't use brute force, uh, but he, he was a he was an intellectual. He was a man. He was a sort of a uh, cosmopolitan a man who and, and so a German uh, uh, Jew who um, had whose family had had to flee Germany. They fled to Moscow during the uh, Nazi time, and then he came back. Uh, the, the the Soviets sent him back to to live in East Germany and run and set up this intelligence agency. And interviewing him was like uh, going through. 20th or uh, having 20th century history, uh, European history, European history narrated to me by somebody who, to a large uh, extent, um, influenced it. And uh, he's he's obviously not an angel or a saint in any way, but an incredibly uh, impressive person who managed to shape a country and that country's fortunes. Uh, a country that was pretty much a looser country in other ways, but he managed to shape, shape that country's fortunes just through his own intellect and and um, and uh, well intellectual abilities. Yeah. And we met uh, when just a couple of years before he died. He was uh, he uh, died relatively young. We met at the cafe in Berlin, and I had uh, written to him uh, asking for an interview, and he had written back saying, "Yeah, maximum fifteen minutes." And in the end, we spent one and a half hours together. Um, just an incredibly uh, enlightening and and also a bit uh, uh, really frightening experience, simply because he had so he lived through Nazi Germany, he lived through East Germany, and if you think about. Uh, how uh, lucky we are that those of us who didn't live through such times, how lucky we are not to have uh, experienced that because it's really just a lack of the draw. Well, your work in journalism has, uh, I guess, found an, a new way of translating itself as you are um, also the director of the Royal United Service Institute of Modern Deterrence Project. Um, which focuses on governments and business and civil society and how they can work together to strengthen a country's defense against existing and emerging threats. So tell us more about uh, RUSI and, and your work there and how you got into it. Yeah, so RUSI, the Royal United, Royal United Services Institute, is actually the world's uh, oldest think tank. It was founded by the Duke of Wellington in 1831. It's a UK think tank, obviously, it used to belong to UK's uh, Ministry of Defence. Now it's independent, has been for many years, but we're, we're located actually across the street from 10 Downing Street. So it's, uh, I must say, it's an incredibly central location, an incredibly good location to work. Um, so uh, within RUSI, I run something called the Modern Deterrence Project, which you described, um, and you also described what it does. And so uh, what that means in, in, in um, practical terms is we look at how other countries um, use means other than military means to try to weaken countries, uh, well, Western countries, liberal democracies, and how we can better defend ourselves against such forms of aggression. So the most uh, commonly for known form of aggression in that category is cyber attacks. And so if you think of any major company in any Western country, they have been attacked by by uh, hackers, uh, not just once, but uh, thousands of times, of times, uh, hundreds of thousands of times, and, and large companies are attacked several million times a day, not by foreign governments uh, or groups working for foreign governments, but by criminals as well. But a large part of it is. Um, activities by groups working for foreign governments, and they do that because they they uh, want to weaken our countries. And if you think of China, they do it because they want to steal intellectual property for our companies so that they can get ahead in the global game. So the question then is, what do we as Western countries do about that? Because clearly, whatever we are doing now is not working. Because otherwise, uh, well, because the, the attacks are happening and and increasing. So whatever we are doing 
um, is not working. So my program looks at what uh, Western countries, liberal democracies can do to better defend themselves. And um, just to give you a very short answer to the question, what is it that we can do? Well, it doesn't involve the armed forces. The armed forces can't defend us against non-military threats. So it involves governments working with, with industry and even uh, ordinary people like you and me doing that part. So for example, if you think of uh, Superstorm, Standy, Hurricane Katrina, that involved uh, extended power cuts. Now that was because of natural disasters, but these hacks can also result, uh, or cyber attacks can also result in power cuts. So each of us should know what to do in case power went out. And it's, it's sort of charming if power goes out for half an hour, you like, can we have a nice dinner by candlelight? Well, it's not charming or cute anymore if, if it remains uh, off for 12 hours, 24 hours, and so forth, 20, uh, 48 hours, 96 hours. So, and I'm not talking about everybody becoming a prepper. That's not what it is about. It's how we, uh, within our cities, our towns, how we prepare, uh, how our companies prepare, how we prepare individually so that we are um, caught by surprise if, uh, if, for example, a cyber attack is successful. And then there are other forms of aggression that uh, includes information, disinformation campaigns, uh, and includes uh, interference in our elections, and it includes hostile business practices. So uh, other countries' governments using their companies to buy up uh, cutting edge startups, for example, in our countries, and what should we do about that? So it's, uh, all of these are non-military forms of aggression, but uh, we do have to figure out how to defend themselves, to defend ourselves against them. Now you, you realize that when you're part of an organization that uses the words deterrence, defense, or threats, and it's coming from Britain, Many are going to think that you just work for MI6. So can, can you just confirm that you don't have a license to kill and you're not fighting to save the world from a supervillain that hides in an evil lair and has a skinless cat as, as part of his minions? <laughs> I do not, for the record, I do not work for MI6. And I do not work for any other intelligence agency. <laughs> When I first started, uh, you know, researching the organization you were a part of, uh, the most recent Bond trailer came out, and I was like, "There's got to be a connection here." <laughs> <laughs> now you do Maybe have that a, was once upon a time. Yeah, <laughs> well, you do have a new book out about spies. Uh, it's called "God Spies: uh, The Stasi's Cold War Espionage Campaign Inside the Church." Um, and this is an expose of East German Ministry of State's uh, securities endeavors to spy on the church using unexpected agents to gather information and evidence against political dissenters. And you wrote, uh, the infiltrating of East Germany's church-based opposition and partially emasculating its churches, the ecclesiastical department of the Stasi arguably helped prolong the German Democratic Republic's life. Okay, for those that aren't familiar, um, tell us a little bit more about this organization and why they began to spy on the East uh, Germany churches. So the Stasi was East Germany's uh, domestic intelligence agency, like, uh, for example, the FBI or MI5 here in Britain. Uh, it, it did have uh, the right to essentially carry out surveillance on ordinary citizens who are not uh, suspected of anything. Uh, now, we should add that the FBI at one point in American history was rather heavy-handed itself, but... Um, uh, leaving that aside, that the, the Stasi had as its mission uh, and its task to make sure that um, East Germany remained um, remained peaceful. That there wasn't that people didn't voice opposition to the government, and that the government remained in place. Now, in in uh, and. and and that was a challenge because it was always the same government because it was an authoritarian government. You didn't, I mean, there were elections, but they always resulted in, in the same outcome because uh, it wasn't free and fair elections. So uh, if you don't have free and fair elections, people will obviously live in other ways. And it was the Stasi's uh, task to make sure that all of that was, was uh, nipped in the bud. So you can imagine what a formidable task that was. And um, within the Stasi, 
was Department 20 slash 4, and that was a crucial department because Department 20 slash 4 had as its top look after East Germany's churches. Now, in most countries, churches are not that influential politically, but in East Germany, churches played a crucial role because uh, they were essentially the only semi-free space where people could gather and, and voice some sort of uh, independent thoughts and, and even uh, opposition to the government. And, and the government couldn't really shut down these Germanys. Germany is a civilized country and, and it could close churches and send Christians to penal camps, but East Germany as a, a civilized country couldn't really... The Strasse specifically department 20 slash 4 had to keep a very close eye on what was going on in these circles and make sure it didn't uh, bubble to the surface and that task even more challenging by the fact that christians as you know are connected around the world so it wasn't just a matter of uh, uh, keeping the lid on on christians in east germany they were connected abroad and you can't just completely seal off a country from from um, uh, from the rest of the world. So uh, keeping, uh, keeping uh, tabs on these Christians, even though uh, they were internationally connected and could communicate with, with their friends and, and acquaintances abroad, it was a, a phenomenal task. Oddly, uh, this chapter of East German history, even though it's so important, not just for East Germans, but for the rest of us as well, um, that it hasn't been uh, featured in the book yet, and I think the reason for that is that nobody has wanted to talk about it. There have been uh, there's been uh, academic work on it in, in Germany to some extent, uh, but no uh, book in English for the general. So I decided I should I should write this book. Well, I guess um, my next question is, I mean, how did, how did you discover it? Again, you've said that not many people want to talk about it. It's been written about academically, but not kind of at a widespread uh, level. So, you know, how did you personally discover the story and decide this is the story you wanted to write about? Well, it goes back quite a, a few years, actually, to, to when I was growing up in, uh, in a Swedish university city. Um, my father, who was a theologian, had a, um, a friend um, so a, a theologian who turned up at at, at the uh, the theology school of theology sort of unexpectedly and, and in in, uh, in Sweden as in Germany and, and academic theologians train in the same place it's the theology department or theology school so he he turned up completely unexpectedly this um, this um, and the theologian who was Austrian but had arrived by way of East Germany and so yeah this uh, Austrian theologian made friends with all the other theologians, including my father. And so we saw a lot of him when I was growing up. And then when I was at university, which was in, in the early uh, to mid 90s, as I said, uh, in the former East Germany, uh, all of a sudden it was in the news in Sweden that, that this uh, Austrian slash East German uh, theologian had been uh, discovered to have been working for the Stasi all along. Um, and so I heard about that and, and nothing much happened. And he said that it wasn't true. And then in 2014, the, East, uh, the, the German government agency that's in charge of all the Stasi records um, put out a news release saying that they had found uh, an a great number of uh, uh, sacks of shreds uh, with material, pieces of paper as man, and they had pieced them together. And now I had, uh, I think, about 1,500 pages of uh, material from this man's files. And uh, it was clear that it was this man, the Austrian theologian in Sweden. And so then I became interested in the story again uh, sorry did i say 2014 i think it may have been 2013 but thereabouts and so in 2015 i decided that i should write a book about it not just about him because he really wasn't the most important uh man working for department 20 slash 4 but actually uh what i wanted to do was write a book about um about 
this this church department what it did and specifically uh, the people who signed up to work for it as as agents so undercover as it were and those were often pastors uh, bishops theology professors who so they went about their work and as normal and then while doing that they also worked for the stasi and spied on on everybody who who they came across and i thought it was a yeah the most riveting story ever and also obviously highly immoral story uh, but one that as per, absolutely needed to be written and um, so i started uh, doing initial research and found one of those pastors who uh, and he was willing to to talk to me for the book and then the big breakthrough was when the director of the department uh, of the church department uh, in the stasi uh, who has never given an interview before uh, when he agreed to speak to me. And then I knew that uh, the book had to be written and uh, that's what happened. Hmm. You, you wrote in the book, um, you said that Karl Marx, Karl Marx versus Jesus Christ, that Christianity is communism's greatest foe. Uh, why is that? Well, because it's uh, like communism, it's, it's a life choice, it's a lifestyle, it's an, if, an ideology, if you will. And it's all encompassing. I mean, you, 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 you can choose to be a consumer, you can choose the market, you can choose market economy, but that's not the, the conviction, it's not the ideology, it's just uh, sort of a pedestrian, every, uh, everyday choice you, you make. But if you are, a Christian, you, you fully believe in, in, in that way of life. But if you are a, a communist or a Marxist, we well, fully believe in that kind of life. And those two things really are incompatible. And that's what the Stasi knew. They knew that uh, Christians in East Germany would never be f- fully, could never be fully committed to uh, the government's ideology. And that's why it considered dangerous. This podcast is presented to you by the Center for Congregational Health. At the Center, we believe God has called and empowered congregations to change the world. For 25 years, Center consultants, coaches, and educators have been supporting congregations, clergy, and lay leaders as they meet the ongoing challenges of congregational life, including training ministers to manage transition, helping congregations work through polarizing conflict, coaching clergy to discover and utilize their gifts for ministry, and assisting congregations in discerning God's call to future missions and ministry. Center consultants and coaches don't dispense expert advice. Instead, they recognize the uniqueness of each congregation and work to create the space needed for God's people to discern and follow the leading of the Holy Spirit. Please visit our website, healthychurch.org, to learn more about the center and find the help you need in order to thrive in missions and ministry. Now, in the book, you talk a lot about uh, Siegfried Krugel. Uh, he's a theologian and faculty member at Lutheran Theological College in Leipzig, who informed on congregants and fellow pastors in exchange for various benefits. And Krugel um, is representative of about two-thirds of the professors at um, Humboldt University's theological school that worked as unofficial agents of the Stasi. So first, tell us why you think clergy and theologians were willing to betray the church. Maybe if you can put it in those terms, I don't know if you would make that argument. And second, take us a little deeper into uh, Krugel just in general. Yeah, so there were various motivations behind this choice. Uh, So some, uh, some pastors, including uh, the Jürgen Kapisko is featured in, in, in the book and who spoke to me at great length. Um, some, including him, were committed socialists or they were committed to East Germany. They wanted the country to survive. And Kapisko said, I, I don't want a big Germany again. I want, I want this small country that can do nobody else any harm. And so he was willing to do his part to make it survive. Now, that was... Uh, you might say a very deceptive part because he did work for the Stasi, but that was his motivation. He was ideologically motivated, but those, those pastors were the exception. Most pastors really just did it for very uh, practical reasons or selfish reasons. They wanted certain advantages. They wanted to uh, leapfrog their colleagues uh, on the career ladder. They wanted, uh, 
certain practical benefits. So East Germany was a, a country that uh, was essentially, but it, it was a relatively poor country. There was um, a shortage of a lot of goods. Everybody wanted Western goods. So many pastors spied uh, in exchange for Western goods or uh, in exchange for uh, certain uh, material advantages, a phone line, you know, travel permits, because they had to apply for, for travel permits to, 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 um, to travel to the West, things like that. So the sad thing is that a pastor could be had pretty cheaply, if you want to put it in those terms. Or some of the... And then, uh, and then if I can just add, some, including Alexander Garda, who you mentioned earlier, seemed to have done it because they needed they felt they needed some sort of family and so they treated the the case officer the handler almost like a sort of a father figure and uh, that's not uh unsurprising i think so if you think of of germans of a certain age germans who were born during the war many of them had lost their fathers in the war so to then sort of get a, a father figure within the Stasi, you know, somebody who looked after them, somebody they could confide in. That must have been a very powerful force for those men. It's hard for us to imagine, but um, it uh, it's becomes obvious ten, uh, time and again in, in the Stasi part. These men were looking for some sort of connection with, with a father figure. Hmm. In the book, you talk about... Um some of the the perks they got for being so-called god spies um what was the pettiest perk you 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 uncovered through this story of of these men receiving as a result of spying on on fellow clergy and theologians one bishop uh once uh, received a lamp i think <laughs> that was uh, a pretty petty reason to to work for the stasi Now, many of these pastors and theologians that spied on the church continue to deny their involvement with the Stasi. And in fact, you wrote that they seem to be at peace with themselves about it. Um, do you think they chalk this up to patriotism or something else? And if it's patriotism, you know, where does that line uh, begin to dissolve between patriotism and their commitment um, to the church and to the, the cause of their faith? So the very sad reality is that virtually nobody who spied and who spied confessed having done so. Now, some were unmasked anyway, and obviously there was no denying that they had done it, even though many tried to deny it, and, and Alexander Gardner tried to deny it for, for many years until the evidence was just too over. And, and since, since uh, then, he hasn't said anything. Um, but I, so it's, it's hard to say because the vast majority of pastors who spied, uh, haven't confessed to doing so. Um, and I, I think ones who have, uh, been unmasked, almost every one of them uh, has essentially bottled it up to talk about it. Capi who I interviewed for my book is, is a huge exception. And I don't think if, if these men who haven't yet been unmasked, if they were to, and, and also the ones who have been unmasked, if they were to examine their conscience, think, I don't think patriotism would, would play a role. They, I think, would just try to, to completely eliminated from their memories. Now, some um, include one, a, a female theology professor, not a pastor. Um, she uh, is actually, this is quite interesting, and was part Jewish, survived World War II in Berlin, and her name is um, uh, Große Marie Müller-Streisand, she's actually a distant relative of Barbara Streisand, but a committed Marxist, and there is no doubt that she did it for, for ideological reasons, but she was a rare exception too. Um, so for the most part, they did it for, for very 
pedestrian reasons. And because of that, I don't think they would be willing to examine uh, their conscience or, or their memories because it's just, it's just, I think, too painful to think about having, having deceived so many people, having betrayed so many people in, in exchange for a lamb, essentially. Hmm. Well, I, guess, I mean, the same argument, uh, you know, I guess could be made about, um, you know, Lutheran clergy during uh, the reign of Nazi Germany, certainly uh, the Catholic Church in Italy um, during World War II as well, that it's hard to come to terms um, with the choices we made and the things that we were willing to look past. Um, I can imagine it's difficult for them also to come to terms with what they were willing to do uh, in this period of time. Yes, and, and I think uh, those of us who haven't lived in an authoritarian or, or totalitarian country shouldn't uh, be on our high horses about what we would have done. I think most of us would be no heroes in such a situation. We, like, we would like to think we would be, but we'd probably be as cowardly and, and selfish. Uh, most of us would be as cowardly and selfish as, as those pastors behind the Iron Curtain were. Now, talk to us about some of those who were being spied on. Um, why were they a threat to these turncoats? And maybe that's a harsh term. Um, and, and to the Ministry of the State Security. And, and what should we know about their legacy? Uh, one person who is, uh, whom I interviewed at, at length and number for the book, uh, his name is he um, was um, an idealistic youth pastor, a really good pastor. But uh, before that, uh, when he was at university um, in the 50s, he had at one, at one point wrote a, a poem or sort of a rhyme on his notebook during a lecture. And then he, uh, he mistakenly left his notebook in the in the lecture hall after the lecture. And this was during the 50s when East Germany was still very Stalinist, a very well brutal oppression of, of dissent. And another student, so remember, Kutke was a theology student, another student found his notebook and turned it in to the authorities. And, and Kutke was convict, uh, given a, uh, well, arrested and given a prison sentence. And after that, he was kept under constant surveillance by, uh, by the Stasi, so by, by the department this book is about. And he was, he was uh, uh, very much, a, a, uh, um, what should I say? Well, he, he was an, um, an idealist in that he, he stood up for what he believed in, was not going to cave to the government. And he, he he was a which uh, meant that he had the ability to to influence a lot of young people, so youth pastor at the university, so student pastor really, and uh, he was very good at it. And uh, so the Stasi just kept of uh, people spying on him in that capacity. And later, when he taught at one of the uh, Lutheran uh, church-run uh, seminaries, so the Lutheran church-operated seminaries that were basically just tolerated by the government. Um, and I think what we can learn from him is that having integrity, I don't want to say pays off in there because it's not about paying off, but having integrity is always the right choice. So even though he was kept out of the good academic jobs and could only teach, well, could only be a student pastor and then teach at this little Lutheran seminary, in the end, uh, so he was a, uh, turned into a fantastic theologian, even during East German times and teaching at this little tiny little seminary. Uh, in the end, um, he, uh, when East Germany collapsed, he got a, a, a chair in theology at, at the Humboldt University, which is uh, probably Germany's most famous university located in, in the eastern part of Berlin. Uh, he has global fame he's still alive has global fame he's known around the world as an expert on on uh, Karl Barth who's a, a German theologian well uh, uh, well was a German theologian and so even though he had to put up with a lot of discrimination for many years in the end 
he emerged with his integrity intact and with his academic work recognized all over the world. Did this research challenge your view of religion in the church? It could certainly, I don't want to say it made me more cynical because I, I was already so familiar with it, but I think it will make readers, uh, and tell me if I'm wrong, but it will make readers quite cynical about the sort of people you find uh, in the church, whichever church it is. and. And that's exactly what the Stasi knew. There are lots of good people in, 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 in denominations, but there are also some really pretty unpalatable ones who are selfish and uh, have no integrity. And uh, the Stasi knew how, <laughs> how to find them. I mean, it was very good at keeping records figuring out whom to talk to and and so i think um i'm i didn't i i didn't have any illusions about the sort of people i would encounter writing this book but i know that uh, a lot of people will probably uh, be pretty shocked <laughs> by what they read and by but by what some of these pastors did and uh for example, just the other day, somebody uh, tweeted about the book saying I could, uh, I struggled to, to keep kosher when reading about one of these pastors because what he did was so incredibly cruel. Um, but then again, um, it is like a, it's a, it's like a, a spy novel, even, even though it's real, but um uh, every spy novel has some pretty unpleasant and really quite cruel people, unfortunately. What shocked you most about your research? I don't want to say it shocked me, but, but it, a, a big discovery was finding out uh, how one of the pastors who... Uh, uh, one of the pastors who are portrayed in the book, um, and Gat Bambowski is his name, how he managed to extremely successfully and cunningly influence uh, Western Bible smuggling, smuggling networks. So if you may remember, your readers may remember that back in the 60s and 70s and 80s, Western organizations, including American organizations, uh, uh, invested a lot of money and effort into smuggling books behind the Iron Curtain. So, so smuggling books to uh, to people in in the Soviet Union and other uh, and other uh, uh, communist countries. Well, this pastor on behalf of the Stasi and the KGB infiltrated those smuggling networks and uh, diverted a lot of the books from their recipients and and not just books, but but printing presses too he diverted all of that well a lot of it and um uh in many other cases uh on behalf of the stasi and the kgb he uh, revealed the identities of the recipients to the kgb because the kgb hadn't been able to figure it out figure out how figure out itself on its own how these uh, smuggling networks operated so it's uh Turn to the part twenty slash four in, in East Germany, and uh, and uh, this agent's uh, pastor Gerd Bamboski um, did the work. And so, if your leader, readers are listening uh, to this particular uh, to this particular part of the story, they should be um, maybe if they can think back to, to the seventies and eighties and whether they gave money to those organizations. Unfortunately. Uh, that may have been completely ruined by this pastor. Um, so it's, that is really quite shocking because these organizations were so, uh, they did such important work and uh, it was often dangerous and they raised money uh, painstakingly for lots of good people in America and elsewhere and they were betrayed by this man. I know it's hard looking at 
some of these um, just remarkably despicable um, people and the choices they made. Um, but, you know, what about your research? Um, what gave you hope? I'll tell you what gave me hope. And it was a conversation with, uh, with the protagonist of the book, uh, a man who uh, I hope we'll talk about later, Joachim Wigand, the, the colonel who ran the department. At some point uh, during one of our many conversations, and he was incredibly generous in letting me uh, interview him, not just once, but over uh, the visits for many hours. So at one point, uh, his wife happened to be in the room. And I said to her, I asked whether she had any background in in uh, in the church and she said yeah i, I was baptized but um but uh, yeah i i didn't really go to church and, and of course in east germany you, you didn't really that was really not the thing to do anyway and, she, and and then she came to talk about the current situation and she said well you know how could i possibly be a christian when 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 you hear of priests abusing kids and then her husband who had spent his whole career with some pretty unpalatable and despicable representatives of, of churches he said but that's just a tumor and i thought that was an incredibly powerful thing to say so here's a man who has seen the worst sides of christianity and when his wife uh, points out uh, uh, one of those ugly sides he he essentially defends the church and I thought if you ask me for a hopeful moment or a moment of hope that was the moment well, we obviously want people to go out and purchase and read the book um, but I mean what is your hope for those who are reading the book um, how do you hope this book will be received by clergy in the church? Well, I hope people will enjoy reading the book. And, and I, uh, if I may modestly say so, I think they will, because it, not because I wrote it, but because it's a fascinating story. And it, it reads like a, a spy novel, I think. And you can tell me if you, if you think I'm right. But um, I think, so beyond so the, the reading pleasure, I think, I hope they'll also think about how they would have acted in such a situation because it's not just about East Germany. This could happen really anywhere that all of a sudden you're put under pressure. Well, how do you act when you're under that pressure? I'm not talking about time pressure. I'm talking about pressure to do the right thing um, or the wrong thing um, or the immoral thing. How would you act in such a situation if you had, if you got uh, advantages out of uh, betraying your friends? would you still do the right thing even though doing the right thing would mean maybe foregoing well, certainly foregoing those advantages and, and possibly being uh, penalized for it too and i think if we examine our conscience probably many of us would take the advantages uh, and just say well they my friends will never find out i i did this to them and uh that's, that was the reality in East Germany. We are lucky that we haven't experienced it on such a large scale in, in, in Western countries. But it's a, I think it's, it's a, this is a very good opportunity to, to think about those choices ourselves and maybe learn from, from what East Germans had to go through. And it's not that long ago. This uh, past November it was 30 years since the, the Berlin Wall came down lots of these people who lots of people who, who, who lived in germany are earnestly and and we can learn from them as as unexpected as it sounds do you have another project you're currently working on that you want to share well i am uh beginning to work on a new book i'm not sure i can tell you yet uh, what it's about um but i can tell you uh what the book after that might be about um, and it's about 
a German group in the 1970s. I don't know if you have heard about something called the Madre-Meinhof gang. It was, a, a, of all things, a German terrorist group. So in, this was in West Germany in the 60s and 70s. Uh, a group of students uh, that went completely radical, started robbing banks, uh, killing industry uh, bosses. Uh, and this all grew out of the 68 movement, flower power and so forth. Incredibly fascinating. Um, so, but that would be, that may be the book after this next one. So I'm not there yet. <laughs> I love how you so modestly said, I can't tell you about this book that I'm currently working on, but the next one after that, I like, I haven't even <laughs> written one book and you're like, let me tell you about, you know, two down the road here that I'm actually working on. <laughs> That's fantastic. Well, uh, come back to me when I'm working on the second one. I may not be so optimistic about the third yeah. one. <laughs> I'll come back on your show when I'm, in the depths of doing research for the second one and I may have given up my plans for the third one. <laughs> well, if you want to stay connected uh, with Elizabeth, you can check out her work at rusi.org. Uh, of course, follow her on Twitter at Elizabeth Braw. Uh, go out and purchase God Spies wherever books are sold. Uh, Elizabeth, thank you for bringing us such a fascinating and challenging story of the intersection of patriotism and faith. And thank you for challenging us to consider how we will conduct ourselves in perplexing circumstances. Well, thank you very much for having me and I enjoyed the chat. Well, that's it. That's our conversation. Be sure to support our annual sponsors by visiting their websites at fuller.edu and healthychurch.org. Check out cbf.net for information about our church starters, field personnel, advocacy work, chaplains, and much more. Oh, and uh, one more thing. I don't think we've mentioned it on the podcast before, but visit cbf.net backslash podcast support for ways that you can contribute to the CBF podcast conversations and get some pretty cool stuff in return.